Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode one of A Tall Glass Podcast. I am Anthony Etter, one of three hosts that are tag teaming this podcast. Uh, we are excited to uh, share our insight and our stories with you, the listeners. And uh, we're going to be rotating um, throughout the next couple pot or episodes here. Uh, but we're super excited for episode one. <laughs> leading off with one of my best friends and his story um, up to this point in his life, and that's Jimmy Dankel. So, Jimmy, whenever you're ready, take it away. Thanks, Anthony. So, I thought a lot about how I wanted to take this first podcast, which direction I wanted to take it in, and uh, decided a good way to kind of get to know me for as a listener uh, would be to tell uh, a tale of basically three major setbacks that I've had in my life and how I've been able to turn them into um, the largest growth opportunities and development opportunities that have gotten me to where I am today. And, uh, you know, ran it by with the, my fellow co-hosts and we decided to roll with that as episode one. So Anthony's going to be kind of walking through the, the timeline and then I'll add the story along as we go. So Jimmy, t talk to us a little bit about, um, those early years and some some of your goals that you had um you know growing up and, and why specifically those were your goals yeah so um growing up you know took sports and academics incredibly serious i was a wrestler and baseball player and uh you know books obviously came first that was how i was raised but uh, athletics um were, were very important to my upbringing and uh, my primary sport growing up was wrestling. And uh, ever since I can remember when I started wrestling at three years old, um, you know, the goal in the back of my head and the way I trained was to one day become a state champion in the uh, state of Ohio um, in high school wrestling. And Ohio is a very competitive state for wrestling. So it's a lofty goal, but it was one I set out from, you know, as early as I can remember and was, you know, my, my primary goal, my primary dream, uh, as a little kid, stand atop that podium one day um, as a young adult. Nice. Nice. So, you know, you're competing in the youth level, obviously starting off. I had the privilege. Um, I know this, you know, from growing up with you and, and going to school with you that you competed in the middle school level, but then had the opportunity also to compete the high school mm -hmm. level. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about that high school experience of, of wrestling uh, for Cuyahoga Heights High School and uh, specifically some of those challenges that you faced uh, throughout that time yeah man so was super lucky to be on a on a very competitive team probably one of the best if not the best um teams in our in our high schools you know over 100 year history and um so we pushed each other real hard in the room uh, made each other better every day and uh I, uh, my freshman year, I missed qualifying for the state tournament. They only take the top 16 guys. I missed it by one match. It was one match away and uh, came back sophomore year. I ended up taking fifth in the state that year. And um, so, you know, pretty big jump from not making the state tournament to taking fifth. Um, going into my junior year, definitely was, was thinking, you know, top of the podium. It was that time. And made it to the state tournament again and actually upset the number one ranked guy in the quarterfinals. And uh, 
but then was upset myself by the eventual champ in the in the semis. Ended up taking a sixth place that year, so I actually took a step down from from fifth my sophomore year um, after losing that semifinal match. Just you know, bad draw and then tough tough bracket in the in the consolation side. So. Um, yeah, I didn't didn't achieve that goal, but I still had one more year, right? I still had my my senior year, that culminating uh, event to to get it done. And um, unfortunately, I uh, decided I needed to go see the doctor after the, the the year ended because I was having this really bad um, like nerve pain in my hand um, that radiated all the way down um, from my spine, limited range of motion. I wasn't sure if it was my shoulder, my neck. You know, wrestling's a very um, physically demanding sports at, at the end of a season, you're usually pretty banged up, but this was something different. So um, a couple, couple weeks of the season. Go ahead. Was there like a trigger that like somebody grabbing you and pulling you a certain way, or was this something that developed over a length of time or was there, there's some incident? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say just from wrestling you know, my entire life and, and the last handful of years leading up to that year round, um, your, your neck just kind of takes a beating, your whole body does. Right. But um, yeah, there was a specific moment. It was actually my sophomore year. So rewinding a whole year prior, it was like the match that I needed to win to get to this, the state tournament to qualify for states. I wrestled uh, on this kid that was, um, you know, higher ranked than me. And um, he basically did a move that cranked, really hard on my neck for the last like two minutes of the match. And uh, so that's, that was actually the initial um, time when it went from like, you know, just a, a nagging issue to like a no shit, this is an injury. But mind you, I said that was my sophomore year. So I finished wrestling my sophomore year. I go to the doctor. It's the first time I'm being seen. So they just said, okay, we'll take some x-rays. X-rays didn't really show anything. So they're like, okay, take some time off, rest, do all that. So I did all those things. It got a little bit better the whole year, pretty much from start to finish. I'm dealing with this issue that's getting worse and worse, but yeah, I'm, I, hell no, I'm not going to go see the doctor during the season because I, you know, he could shut me down or she could shut me down for, uh, you know, the season if the, if the diagnosis comes back wrong. So it's better just not to know and let it ride. And uh, so when I went back to the same doctor after the junior year, you know, they're like, this is, this is significantly worse than last year. We need to, we need to get you an MRI this time. And, uh, you know, got the MRI and they told me they'd call me a week later to schedule an appointment to go over the results. Um, about 12 hours later, my mom got a call and had to frantically pick me up at, at school, um, rip me out of class to go down to downtown Cleveland clinic to have, um, an emergency surgery scheduled for like about a week later. Um, the surgeon wanted to do it same day, but my parents wanted some time to process it. But basically the diagnosis from the MRI was that um, my C6, C7 vertebrae disc, which is sits like right at the bottom of your neck where your shoulders come in, um, with that disc was, you know, you hear like bulging and herniated discs. It was completely blown out from the spinal column and was, you could see on the MRI, it was compressing the spinal cord to almost nothing. And um, you know, from the surgeon's mouth directly, a car accident or a bad fall could leave you paralyzed if this is not dealt with immediately. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was 16 years old at the time. So to hear that news and having just wrestled an entire season basically with this issue, um, you know, thank God, 
nothing happened that that would have you know put it past that tipping point. Wow, I mean, a lot to digest. Definitely, as a 16 year old, like you said, um, what helped you though during those times? Like, what were those conversations like with family and friends to help you with that situation at the hand that you had? Yeah, uh, I mean, not any young man's lucky to have good parents and, and good um, coaches, teachers, role models in their life. And, and that's something I feel I've always been blessed with is just an amazing support system. And, you know, I think I was, I was pretty mature from, from my age. So I was able to rationalize it better than most 16 year olds would have, but not, not on my own. It was, it was mostly because I had the support system around me and, and also an amazing surgeon that was, you know, he's operating on my Cleveland Indian <laughs> baseball players. Um, yeah, I got lucky just because the Cleveland Clinic is such an awesome hospital system. I had a top tier um, neuro ortho surgeon to do it, and uh, but the but I mean, yeah, the most important thing was having the the coaches and parents and and family friends in my corner. You know, those those adults to help me realize uh, you know everything's gonna be okay after the surgery. Gotcha. So you get this. You you're start to get a little pain your sophomore year of high school. You fight through it. You compete all junior year of, of high school. But then you go trying to start for your senior year, and you right. get informed that you, you can't wrestle for your senior year. Yeah. Right? Well, and then you, you get the surgery, and you're recovering your, your whole senior year. Pretty much. So the surgeon initially, his product diagnosis was you're not going to, you're not going to wrestle again. That was even before he did the surgery, just in that initial consultation. And, uh, you know, like any 16 year old, I'm going to wrestle. I still have unfinished business. I still Wait, a have this. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. A 16 year old, you had the attitude towards a, a surgeon at the Cleveland clinic who said, you're never going to wrestle again because you might become paralyzed. This disc is so bad. I'm a doctor. If I don't I've have, studied, I've if studied I don't get the stuff. surgery, if I don't get, get the surgery, surgery, yes, it was not I thought a question he said of getting the surgery. I thought he so, said you weren't going to wrestle at all. Period. That's not what he said. He said, you know, I, I should not wrestle even after the surgery. But right, and he's a doctor. But you said, as a 16 year old, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, doctor. Well, I, I didn't still say think that I to wrestle beyond that point. You were thinking that. Thinking it. Yeah. Him. Right. I would expect any 16-year-old to have I definitely mentality. would not think that. I mean, he's a mm. doctor, right? Mm. I mean, am I wrong? He's a doctor? No? Doctors can be wrong. I guess you're right. So Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Shit's on yeah. fuck off. I'm not getting it at all. So well, <laughs> No, I needed the surgery. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's funny because he actually reversed his decision you know, following the surgery, following the rehab, seeing where it went, he said, Hey, you know, um, it's safe for you to go back and wrestle if, if you would like, um, you've recovered well, um, you know, above expectation for a surgery of this magnitude. Um, I don't recommend necessarily you wrestle, but like, I'm not, I'm, there's nothing medically barring you from deciding to compete your senior year. And this is like right before senior year of high school starting. So end of summertime, um, okay when I got that uh, kind of like final bless, you know, sign off from, from my surgeon following the surgery. Mm. Gotcha. So, so talk us, walk us through that last year of high school and um, 
you know, what, what decision did you make and what resulted of that? Yeah. So basically, um, like I said, initial dream from the time I was a little kid was to become a state champion wrestler. I'd say my second dream, and this developed toward the end of elementary school, beginning of middle school, um, was I wanted to attend the U.S. Naval Academy and become a, an officer in the, in the U.S. military. Um, I wanted to still go to school and get an undergraduate education, but I also wanted to serve my country. And a lot of that was shaped by you know, 9-11 as a little kid, not being able to really process it, but understanding that there were bad people out there that, you know, our military um, went after when they attacked us. And then seeing the, the invasion of Iraq and being a kid over those handful of years, seeing, you know, kids <clears throat> much older than us in our community going off to war and uh, decided that was the path I was going to take very early on. So if we fast forward to senior year, um, while all of this is happening, the surgery, the recovery, um, starting my senior year, I'm also applying to uh, both West Point, which is you know the U.S. Uh, military academy for the Army, and Annapolis, the U.S. Naval Academy. And um, at that point, because they make you start the application so early, I was actually pretty far into the process um, around the time that I like fully recovered from my neck surgery and. Um, I, because you're joining the military, a big part of the application process is this medical examination and all these military doctors are seeing my, my file with this spinal surgeon or spinal surgery on my record, which, you know, is very rare for a 16 year old to have had to gone through. And that's already raising these massive red flags and, um, posing a significant threat to not being accepted. Um, even though I was like accepted from like an academic and like a physical fitness standpoint. So um, luckily I was able to gain a, a waiver that basically said, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to waive this requirement for you not to have had any massive um, orthopedic spinal surgeries. Um, and based off of how your physical fitness scores look like and your performance in sports up to this point, we're going to waive that and allow you to attend um, with that waiver. So, you know, great news, but at the same time, it didn't say this in writing or anything, but it's kind of an, a reasonable um, inference that if I had re-injured my neck at any point between now and when they were looking for me to uh, report to the Naval Academy, which was the following summer, I'd at, at an absolute minimum, they were going to reinvestigate my entire file. Um, but most likely I would imagine they wouldn't be willing to take that big of a risk considering, considering they're already taking a huge risk by, um, by, by, by waiving a spinal surgery and who knows, I mean, let's just, that's just even saying it wouldn't have gotten way worse. Let's say if, uh, if I had continued to wrestle. So, um, yeah, I mean, all that comes down to making a decision that was incredibly hard for me, which was to sit out my, my senior year of wrestling to, um, put myself in the best position from a safety and health standpoint to not jeopardize my um, my offer of appointment to attend the DS Naval Academy. So I had to abandon one dream to um, to pursue another. So yeah. there's a there's setback into opportunity one. Um, you know, I, I traded a potential high school state championship in wrestling for the opportunity to attend uh, the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. 
certainly a, a silver lining uh, in it for sure. You know, so, you know, this is now 2011, uh, fall 2011, you're joint, you're accepted, you're going into Naval Academy. Um, talk to us a little bit about that experience and, um, you know, early on those, those early years at the Naval Academy and um, you know, if there were any setbacks that occurred then. Yeah. So um, the Naval Academy gave me everything that I wanted um, in terms of the challenge, in terms of the camaraderie with, uh, with my classmates, in terms of just being a part of an organization bigger than, than oneself. So, um, you know, it was, it was a, a round peg, round hole, like perfect fit type of scenario for, for me heading off to college and wanting to still get a top tier education, but also wanting to get, um, you know, trained in military service and eventually going on to lead sailors and Marines um, in the, in the operational forces. So um, really awesome um, opportunity. And, you know, it worked out in the sense that, you know, I guess a small sacrifice not to be able to chase the dream of the state championship, but a well worth it sacrifice um, to attend Navy. There's quite a couple of hoops you have to jump through to even get into, you know, kind of like applying for the Naval Academy. It's uh, uh, and for those out, out there in our listening audience that don't know about the military schools, there's, I didn't know this myself, um, that these military colleges are basically like Ivy League schools as far as like how they are seen in the world uh, and those who get an education from them. I, I really, myself, I didn't have any idea and I didn't realize I think Jimmy, you had to get like a congressman's yeah, approval yeah, or something to, like that. Yeah, it's a secondary application that's needed. Either like one of your state senators, whatever state you're in, or your local um, representative. Dennis Kucinich, if I remember yeah. correctly. That's right. He that's called awesome. me. He that's called great. me to let me know that he was. Uh, Did he personally me. call you? It's something. You're on top of the world, right? You're at a naval academy. You're at the military academy. Um, at Annapolis, living living your best life, mm -hmm. right? Training, going to different, doing different uh, uh, training courses with your your in, your friends. You're become you're becoming closer with you know. You're off to college. You're creating new relationships, new friends that you're still you know super you know close with. I know now uh, as well. But so you're on top of the world. There's no problems. Nothing nothing happened. Right? <laughs> you want to enable? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it had its fair share of challenges, but to be honest, they were challenges that I just, I, I loved. I loved the physical, mental, emotional challenges that came with the service academy. It kind of fed off of and I had this group of friends that I developed there that, you know, just like we, we got along so well, things were great. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I set out, you know, from, from day one of, of Plebe Summer, which is like the boot camp uh, first seven weeks at the Naval Academy before the class, you know, year even starts for a normal college, you spend seven weeks doing this, um, it's called Plebe Summer, it's boot camp. And, uh, but from day one of boot camp, you know, with Plebe Summer on, um, I knew that the, the job I wanted to do after graduation in the Navy and Marine Corps was to be a Navy SEAL. Um, it's actually something I wanted to do since I was in also in middle school, it was kind of hand in hand with the Naval Academy dream was the Naval Academy, and then become a Navy SEAL um, in the sense an officer, Navy SEAL officer um, dream of mine. So I, you know, spent the first two years, so first, you know, that first half of my time at the Naval Academy training like an absolute, you know, animal for the, um, 
for the the junior year selection process, which begins, you know, it, um, if you want to be a Navy SEAL through the Naval Academy, it's a very selective um, process because a lot of people that go to the Naval Academy want to be Navy SEALs. So, um, how selective? What are we talking numbers wise? Don't so, out there. So approximately 7% of people who apply to the Naval Academy get in. Hmm. So about 1,200 people get in per year. And then of those 1,200, so it's already, those 1,200 that are there are for the 99% are are super competitive, you know, stud um, performers. And then of those 1,200, approximately three to 400 per year at least want, would consider going the Navy SEAL route. And of those three to 400, approximately 25 slots are available. And A year? Yeah, per year. Wow. Uh, obviously, there's more – besides, you can get into the SEALs without having to go through the Naval Academy. The vast majority true? of – yeah, the vast majority of Navy SEALs are not from the Naval Academy. So, okay. Um, the Naval Academy produces the officers, the leaders within the SEAL platoons, the – lieutenants, oh, the, right. the gotcha. captains, gotcha. things like that. Right. Um, right. But the vast majority of Navy SEALs, when you think of them, are the people that enlist right out of high school or, you know, um, work a couple years and then go off to boot camp and then go to the SEAL training. But um, as an officer, to even get to the select the SEAL training, which is, you know, another six months of having to prove your, yourself and making it through selection, um, at the Naval Academy, you have to go through a, a massive amount of hoops and selection process just to get selected um, to then compete for selection at actual Navy SEAL training. So it's a super, um, you know, uh, alpha type pipeline that just weeds out the week um, very, very fast. So um, yeah, about 400, let's say, let's say 300 people approximately per class of 1200 um, sign up for that initial kind of selection process, your junior year at the Naval Academy. And you know, to make it to junior year already, you're already not a slouch, right? Like you're not, these aren't people off the streets. These are very fit, very strong-minded people signing up. And um, they put you through like, what's a 36 hour long, um, it's called a screener, SEAL screener, which is, you know, an absolute grueling test of mental, physical, uh, emotional endurance and toughness. And uh, of those 300, only about 75 um, make it through. So it quickly would, and, and by make it through, I don't mean they get like, they don't, they don't pass or fail events. I mean, they quit because that they just cannot take the, the beating any longer um, over those 36 hours. What was the most challenging part for you um, during the screener? Neck exercises. <laughs> No, that's the funny part, right? Is my neck held up just fine and never had any issues, um, which is really ironic. But um, I don't know. It was November in Annapolis, so it's you know it's probably 25, 30 degrees outside, and we're spending hours in uh, in the in the Severn River, which is the river next to Annapolis, just sitting in the freezing cold water, dealing with that mental um, hurdle. You know, people can run fast, people can jump high, people can lift a, a shit ton of weight, but <laughs> you put them in cold water it's a it's a different cold beast. sucks man yeah for sure yeah, yeah the human so, body is just we're not meant for it no yes yeah, probably that and that's that's if you talk to people who actually make it through the full seal pipeline or you know navy seals they'll tell you it's almost always going to be the cold it just it yeah 
there's not much you can do to <laughs> to power through it except just to absolutely you know block it out to the greatest extent possible yeah all right so you you accomplished the screener right so you're on yep. track to become a navy seal yep or so i thought or so you <laughs> thought right so, oh jesus yeah. yep yeah so i made it through um made it through the screener and you know I'm, I'm super competitive to keep moving through the process and there was a lot more to go you know so there's no it's just like the state championship or wrestling nothing's guaranteed i still would have had to compete for it i still would have had to you know i made it basically to that final 75 I, you know but they were only going to take maybe 25 to 30 so um still an uphill battle but um um you know, one that, one that was worth, worth fighting and worth pursuing. So, um, but again, right around that time, the Naval Academy, regardless of what you're looking to do after graduation starts reviewing all of your medical history. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately, while I was able to grant, get a waiver for attendance, at the Naval Academy, um, a doctor took one look at, you know, the, uh, the spinal surgery from at this time, it would have been four years earlier, uh, not four, maybe three years earlier and said, you know, hell no, absolutely not. You're not going through the most physically demanding training in the U S military um, on a compromised neck, which, you know, I can understand from a clinical standpoint, but I also know that I had just spent the last two years training very targeted for this stuff. And I knew my neck was holding up you know, just fine. So at that point, it's um, just like a paperwork thing for them, right? It's just liability. It's not it's about, big, it's a big matrix, right? Yep. It's a big they can matrix. Watch all they like, guy's set for it, but it's on paperwork. It's just, um, it's liability. They had this list yeah. of like big DOD, you know, U S Navy medical policy. They had this list and one of the things was any type of spinal surgery was in the disqualification and there was no waiver process, nothing that you could get around it was there anything else on that list you saw that you thought might also hold you up yeah i had like a i i, I were at contacts and you're supposed to have 20 yeah, vision i remember so, you mentioning something like that too yeah yeah so, but and i had a kidney stone but i, I think that would have been an easy waiver i think it was more <laughs> yeah, like a, i don't know if the kidney stone i mean yeah that seems like a lot of people would have those i don't know yeah. if that would be necessarily a disqualifier but uh yeah, probably a waiverable thing. Um, but the spinal surgery was no, you, there's no waiver process for that to go the seal route, which, you know, I, I understand from a, from a risk mitigation standpoint, why that's the case in the Navy, but obviously for someone who had been training their ass off for like two years, very targeted doing the training and doing the physical exercises that I'd be expected to do at seal training and knowing that my neck was holding up fine. I was like, that's bullshit, but um, you know, there's, there's certain things you can control in life and certain things you you can't. So, um, yeah, so that's setback uh, number two on this on this journey. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember actually this time in our lives, Jim, when you were talking to me about that kind of stuff, and I remember struggling to. Then Anthony maybe felt the same way. I was struggling to even what what to say, what words to say to like, like be like, oh man. Oh, you know, get back on the horse. I don't know yeah. what, what's the next step because, you know, you kind of, not that you did this, but the, the analogy of putting all your eggs in one basket come to mind that like, you're like hyper-focused on that one thing and you 
work so hard for that one thing only for it to be pulled out from underneath you. Um, where do you go from there? Right. So what did you do? Feeling and not feeling sorry for yourself, find a new, find a new mission, find a new kind of goal. And, uh, I said, okay, you know, it wasn't just SEALs that I got disqualified for with my sponsor. It was a handful of things. It was submarines. It was going, uh, flying planes. It was um, explosive ordnance, so like bomb disposal, SEALs. It was a bunch of shit. So mm. luckily, um, the one of the two that I still was fully qualified for was the Marine Corps officer route. And you know, the Marine Corps and SEALs work super closely together. A lot of the similar tactics employ a lot of the similar leadership traits are expected community so um in terms of a you know adjacent community to go into that was a, a a pretty close fit and one that i um you know decided okay that's that's the hand that i've been dealt um and now it's time to gear up for marine corps um officer selection process which one is not as competitive as the seal process so it wasn't like i had to you know um reorient and take years to get ready for like i did the seal route um i was pretty much you know, ready to go as soon as I made the decision to go that way. And, uh, yeah, I ended up, um, getting selected and then set my next goal on becoming an infantry officer because the infantry in the Marine Corps is, you, know, you think of the Marine Corps, you think of the commercials of the Marines charging the beachhead, you know, and rifles and hands. That's the infantry. That is, um, the tip of the spear of the Marine Corps. Um, and if I can't go the Navy SEAL route, I'm, I'm going to go the Marine Corps um, officer infantry route after graduation and um, was selected to go Marine Corps um, my senior year at the Naval Academy and um, graduated as a second lieutenant in the, in the Marine Corps. Mike, you were there. <laughs> I was. Beautiful ceremony. You really felt like you and the audience had never accomplished anything in your life. When you watch them, you're like, wow. Look, I mean, it's just uh, – no, it was a. Uh, it was breathtaking, and it was um, like I said. Former, former Vice President Joe Biden, now President Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Oh my gosh, he was there. That's right. He wow. was the guest speaker. I shook his hand. I should have told got him. Got to hey, shake his hand. Deal. Yes. I said, hey, this is a big fucking deal, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, Love it. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what I think you of rub like your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> So you know what I'm thinking of like here is, you know, you're expressing these setbacks in your life and how there's some, like we said before, a silver lining and new opportunity that comes about. But what I'm curious about is like, who, who helped you along the, the, the way? Who really, were there, were there anyone specifically in high school? Uh, in, in, I mean, we kind of talked about that earlier. So now in the college realm, that really helped helped you and, and you kind of see them as like a role model um, yeah. that you know, mentored you throughout that time and the challenging time too. Yeah. Good question, man. Um, you know, I think, I think a ton of it comes down to your own individual um, fortitude. I really do. Can't get around the fact that some like, life's going to deal you a rough hand. Everyone gets dealt a rough hand from time to time and it's how you respond. But you also really, you know, the other side of the coins, you cannot downplay um, the the support system that you have. So I've always, I've said this a, a thousand times to anyone who's willing to listen. I have the, the best um, group of high school friends, uh, 
college friends and family that, you know, I can ask for just everyone being so supportive. Um, you know, my parents just being my biggest advocates and, and, you know, at this point I'm, I'm a fully grown adult, right. For this one. So it was less about needing like, you know, a, a shoulder to cry on as a kid and more about just needing some people to support me and, and be there for me. And, uh, but I also had someone that uh, is really important to me that I'd grown super close with over those two years, uh, you know, three years up to that point at the Naval Academy. And it was, uh, it was like our, like, it's called like a sponsor family. So basically like your, um, these people that live in the area of the Naval Academy that like um, offer to provide uh, places for midshipmen to stay on the weekends and things like that. But um, luckily you get lucky and you get some really good ones. And um, my friends and I were able to get the really good one who was, he's a retired two-star Admiral and uh, Skip Deeren's his name. And just, the, you know, he, he had such a perspective that, you know, he spent 36 years in the Navy. So he understood that there's, it's a big Navy, it's a big Marine Corps. There's tons of opportunities for you to flex your muscles and, and spread your wings and reach your potential and do all these things. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to validate to yourself or to others that you're, you know, a tough person who's capable leader and things like that. So um, he came to mind when you first said that, but obviously there's so many people, too many people today, including, you know, obviously my parents being the support system that raised me and gave me the values and the mental toughness that I have. So. Gotcha. All right. So timeline is here. Here we, here you are graduating from the Naval Academy, going to go to Marine, Marine officer school. Where's, mm-hmm. where's that at? And, you know, talk yeah, to so, that next uh, chapter in your life. Yeah. So it's only about an hour and a half away from Annapolis. So it was a short move from Annapolis to Quantico, Virginia, um, just outside of Washington, DC, the swamp. <laughs> and, uh, um, it's a six month training course. It's, it's incredibly focused on the field. So you're going from the Naval Academy, a very academic, heavy environment, you know, um, even the leadership training you get at the Naval Academy is very, they do their best to like make it field based, but it's a lot of like sitting in a classroom talking about like leadership theory. Right. But then you go to like Marine officer training and they're taking that theory and they're making you apply it when you haven't had a, uh, a cold or a hot shower in a week. You haven't brushed your teeth in a couple of days. You're hungry as hell. You've gotten two hours of sleep. All the human factors start to seep in and it makes it a lot harder to make a decision that's easy to make in a nice air conditioned, you know, room sitting on a comfy chair at a desk. Right. So, um, that's kind of the intent of that six month training course It's called the basic school and, um, you know, vintage Marine Corps fashion. We're not going to overcomplicate this. We're going to teach you the basics of what it takes to lead Marines in uh, in combat environments because that's what lieutenants are expected to do once they're done with the school. Nice. So you accomplished not that quite. goal, right? Not quite. No. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you're setting me up, Anthony. So, uh, so yeah, I, I have this lofty goal of wanting to go the infantry route and uh, – Another uh, injury plagues me. Um, start to have this nagging uh, pain in my in my hip, my left oh hip, my and I know I'm 22 at the time. Like that sounds like someone who's 62 would have an issue. But you sound like um, the guy Glass from that Unbreak. That what's that movie with Bruce Willis? Mr. Glass. <laughs> it must be the Unbreakable. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, we have the same blood. Half half the half the same blood. So. You have had none of that comes from had. the Dermot side, just so you know. We're we're uh, we're all okay. We don't have hip issues at the I'll age of take that up with the, thirty. 
That's the dangle that's, side. That's from so. the Native American. I guess they're <laughs> fragile. Because they're fragile people. So, yeah, man. So uh, I started having this hip issue, and it's getting progressively worse my senior year. So backing up back to the Naval Academy, and uh, are you got to, at oh, this go point? Are you like, do I fucking say anything? Because last time I said something. It was a total fucking catastrophe. And it's, I mean, you're in pain, right? I mean, so you're like, I got to do something. Basically, I'd say the whole senior year, I'm sitting there with this hip issue and I'm like, man, this is, this is getting worse. But to your point, Mike, I'm not saying anything, man. I'm just going to grind my teeth and get through it. It's not my spine. It's not going to paralyze me. Worst case scenario, (laughs) like... I'll, I'll be paralyzed from the waist down. The worst thing is hip replacement I'll, before I'm, you know, uh, I'm 30, but yeah, it's fine. Right. So um, I, that was the the mantra I took, but it got worse and worse, man. It was almost like this perfect timing where right before I'm about to show up to, um, I graduated the Naval Academy, I had about a month off right before I'm about to show up to start this next phase of the training in Virginia. I can't even go on like a run without like, honestly like unbearable pain like shooting pain and i'm like well this is the problem is if i just if i at this point it's gotten to the point where if i grip my teeth through it i'm my performance i'll get through it my performance is gonna suck yeah my performance yeah, sucks. Right. i'm not gonna get selected to go the infantry route or to go a cool you know interesting job especially i'm gonna get stuck in some best job in the marine corps because i was a bottom performer and um yeah you know, that's just not gonna happen so i had to do that another you know, uh, cost benefit analysis of, well, I guess I'm just going to raise my hand and say I'm hurt. Can I take a little tangent real quick? Sure. I had an itinerary from when I went to watch you graduate, an itinerary of, it was like, um, like a four page pamphlet of the Naval Academy. It had all these different pictures, different programs and stuff like that. You remember them handing those out? Mm-hmm. There was a page and picture of, uh, a Naval Academy drama club. And I'm just curious, what job do they end up with when they get into the Marines or the Navy? I also thought maybe I could have got into the Naval Academy because I can dress up as a pirate. I think in the picture, there was a guy dressed up as a pirate. Your response? <laughs> yeah, we, so we have some interesting cats there. Remember I told you about, and I said 1,200 people get in, and I said 99% of those people are, are tough MFers. Remember I said that? Like, Yes. Five minutes ago. Ninety nine percent. Yeah. You're asking you're asking about that 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 marginal, you know, one percent or so that you know, they go to the Naval Academy, but they don't really fit in with like the alpha male, alpha female um culture there. And uh not to say that they don't come go on to be great leaders, but they're 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 directed more toward the less um frontline focused job specialties painting with a broad brush of course i'm sure there's one or two out there that has done that but uh some of those guys in those pictures might be seals today we don't know yeah we don't know know. the pirate could be a seal if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast you're out there mr pirate please call in (laughs) mr pirate please call as a guest on the show and you i remember correctly you were in the center of the picture kneeling and you had like a sword up in the air so mr (laughs) pirate if you're out there i want to know how you got into the naval academy because I see dedication. I see dedication. He's committed to being a pirate for, for that scene. So yeah, you're, you're committed to being a pirate. So go ahead, Jimmy, you were saying. Yeah. So 
talk to my superior. This is like right when we're starting the six month course, because it happened right after I graduated. So it wasn't too far into the course. And uh, I said, hey, sir, you know, I don't think I can go basically start this, start this six month training. Okay, no problem. Um, and this is this is somewhat common. This is grueling training, so people get hurt during it and have to get sidelined and have to start with a new class and and you know restart and all those things. Excuse me. So, um, I start I start going to see medical and what I know my body well enough at this point. I'm like, this is not a pulled muscle. This is a there's something torn. It is a bone on bone issue, and I'm likely going to need surgery. And uh, oh my god, the pain! I can't imagine yeah. the discomfort. Yeah. So would you uh, like, would you be like when you're laying down, like would, would it be, it was a constant pain, you know, it'd come and go. It's so weird. Finally, after like three months of waiting, I get in front of uh, a doctor who orders an MRI. I get the MRI, go see a surgeon and surgeon literally within, he was actually, he's now um, the surgeon for the uh, Washington nationals baseball team. So, um, but at the time he was a military doc and uh See him at Bethesda, Maryland, which is like the top military hospital in the in the country. And within a minute, he's like, "Yeah, I took a look at your imaging. You need surgery. Like you have a you have a bone on bone impingement of the hip joint. We need to get in there, clear out a bunch of cartilage. We need to surgically break your leg um, to induce blood flow, which will become scar tissue and you know all this medical terminology. Basically, long story short, it's going to improve your hip so that you'll get through." the training you need to over the next handful of years. Um, mm. But he also said the, the success rate of the surgery is relatively low. And, you know, we, we don't really know if uh, a full recovery will be possible. And if, you know, you're going to be, um, you know, he's careful with his words, but all that's going through my head is like, dude, I might not even ever get to actually serve. I could get like medically separated when the military looks at all this shit that's on my medical document. Like they might just make the determination I need to, I need to be separated from the military, even though they sent all that money and spent all that money for me to go to the Naval Academy. Like I am approaching a point where like, I've had a lot of medical issues getting in the way of, um, you know, doing service. So, um, yeah. And, uh, unfortunately while all this is happening to make things like light years worse, I got pulled out of the company that I was in for the training. And now I'm in this, this platoon and and that's basically the platoon full of people that are like not able to train lieutenants that are there because of they got you know a dui or something disciplinary and they got pulled out of training um something as sad as like bipolar suicidal disorder and they can't be training anymore or actual attempted suicide um people like me with a you know just an injury people with behavioral like literally anything and everything that's precluding you from training and you got like farmed out to do this like absolute garbage jobs anything from like mopping floors which i didn't have to do to like the most basic like receptionist work and i'm like i'm a fucking like naval academy graduate and like this is the work this is what i'm doing for the next three months leading up to getting the surgery and then six months following the surgery before i can actually start training oh man so um, do you meet any friends? <laughs> no. DUI um, buddies or anything? Drinking buddies? No. Yeah. My two roommates were actually decent guys, but they definitely took on the... Um, Why were they there? The, uh, injury, both of them. One had concussions oh, okay. and was getting separated because of the concussions. 
it'd be a weird thing to be with somebody who was there because behaviorals like it was in the yeah. same room as you and he was like yeah you know i told somebody i was gonna kill myself so i'm in this <laughs> thing now and yeah. you're like oh my hip bothers me sometimes that's why i'm here i met a couple weird. guys and i didn't know until after the fact that they they were there for like suicidal ideations and other stuff really sad because they seem like no are these all are these all officers that went yeah. to the academy yeah no that's crazy no not naval academy some of them are naval academy some of them but are officers officers yeah so to they get went through that, a very to get that selective far. process yeah you know yeah so um because the jobs we were given were so basic like mopping floors it might take you an hour or two a day so they'd spend the rest of their time just sitting in there like barracks rooms which is just this shithole barracks just watching netflix and just like literally just rotting away man like mentally physically emotionally just isolation you know um, yeah just just a terrible place to heal a terrible place to stay positive all this shit and like the they stuck us in this building that doesn't even exist anymore they knocked it down because it was so asbestos and black mold fucking ridden like dude it was just like it was like literally I, I have videos of this building. It looks like a, a penitentiary. I'm like, this is just, Shutter <laughs> I'm watching all my classmates that are also Marine officers are going to sure. SEAL training, just making it through the pipeline, doing their thing, getting out to the fleet. And I'm just stuck, man. So, um, you know, of the three setbacks that we've talked about, this one by far and away was the biggest one because the most was on the line. Like I had to Mike's point, like this whole, like, putting eggs in baskets. Like I was forced to consolidate three baskets or two to one. And, and now this like one basket is like in serious jeopardy of like going away. And I didn't see a viable, you know, I talk about this like new mission. I didn't see like a viable mission that to, to, to orient on. And uh, I remember sitting outside the, the gym, just like, you know, getting ready to have the surgery and uh, looking at like my options. I'm like, I can't, I, even if I get a full recovery, I'm not going the infantry officer route. It's too demanding on my body. It'll just break my hips even more. Um, I, I'm like boxed in. Like I can't go the infantry route, but I'm stuck in the Marine Corps. And like, let's say there's 25 options, 23 of them, you know, I have there, I have zero, zero interest in, but like, I'm either going to do one of them or get separated from the military because of in injuries, which is even worse. Um, um, but the, so like I said, there's 23, let's say, so there was two that weren't bad. One was the infantry, which, you know, I no longer was willing to do with my hip. And the other one was a very obscure, very little known MOS, which is military occupational specialty, basically a job called uh, counterintelligence, human intelligence. And uh, I had kind of written it off as not an option uh, up to that point because there's about 275 uh, Marine officers per graduating class. Um, through this, through this six month training. And on average, there's one or two spots for this job specialty. So it's, you know, top of the absolute top that can get selected for this. And again, you're already going against people that are super qualified. It's not like it's just 275 average Joe's coming off the street. And, uh, but that was, and at that point, my back's against the wall and it's, um, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I said, well, okay, desperate measures, I'm, yes. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I am uh, I am fully committing myself to preparing as much as humanly possible during my recovery from hip surgery. Um, studying Marine Corps doctrine, studying every single thing I can get my hands on when it comes to the Marine Officer Training Pipeline, 
so that I can graduate the top of my class and get this counter intel, um, human intelligence, MOS. And uh, had the surgery and I spent probably, because I had so much free time because the job I was doing was such a joke um, that they told me to do that I had hours every day. And I, I, instead of watching Netflix and feeling sorry for myself, I spent probably, you know, thousands of pages of Marine Corps doctrine I went through and annotated and highlighted and, and made flashcards and, and, you know, did this, this, and this, and it gave me, you know, I'll say it right now, it gave me an advantage over my, over my peers when I did finally class up. Granted, I had the disadvantage that I had a fucking surgically broken hip that I needed to perform on, but from a, you know, mental standpoint, I was, I was firing on all cylinders by the time I was ready to go, and uh, yeah, um, I ended up graduating number one out of 275 uh, officers in my class, and luxury the luxury of going number one is you get to choose you get first choice it's like a you know an nfl draft style and took counter intel and uh you know the rest is history man i got i got stationed in san diego i got a team of absolute studs that i deployed with um, that were also counterintelligence marines but i was the you know i was the officer i was leading this team of six guys and uh deployed to iraq in the 2018 and against uh, the counter isis fight um was able to do some you know, targeting and, and killing of ISIS and uh, decided to get out of the Marine Corps from there. But, um, you know, I just could not have asked for a better uh, duty station in San Diego, a better deployment and a better team and a better job. And it's all because I got the counter intel MOS. If I hadn't gotten it, who the hell knows where I would have, where I would have ended up. So yeah. while the the biggest setback was that last one, that, that hip surgery, uh, the, the biggest um, growth was the, um, was what I, what I turned it into, which was the graduate number one and go encounter and tell human intel. So nice. Um, yeah. Nice. So now you're, you're married and you're done with the Marine, you're done with the military onto something else. So where does, where does your wife play into this? And how did she, yeah. how did she I left out that, uh, I left oh. out that minor detail, right? <laughs> right. You know, uh, also, fourth, because, my fourth setback is I got married. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the funny thing is, if I hadn't had the second setback, which was, you know, not being able to go the Navy SEAL route, and if I hadn't had the third setback, which was, you know, having to have hip surgery and not being able to go infantry officer, I never would have, if either one of those hadn't happened, I never would have met my, well, I would have met her, but I never would have um dated um started dating my now wife shannon so reason being uh she's from um uh the uh maryland virginia area and originally i'd met her when i was uh no academy as a mutual friend and um we didn't start dating until about two years after we knew each other and it was only because we both were in the area still and neither one of us was, had much going on she was finishing up her senior year of college relatively light course load and I was, one, I was not out in San Diego doing SEAL training because I got disqualified. And two, I was not going through Marine training in Virginia without any free time. So I had tons of free time and we started hanging out and yeah, we ended up getting married a couple of years later. So, um, you know, I, I'm not a big, I really am not a big believer in like everything happens for a reason or any of that. But, um, you know, I think you make the most of the opportunities you're given. And I think, and, and, and with every setback, I, I 1000% believe that there's an opportunity. And I think that, you know, the three setbacks I've had have led to these points where I would, there is a 0% chance I would be where I am right now. 
with those things. And, you know, I didn't accomplish any of the three dreams that I, I had. And I, you know, unfortunately a lot of it was not my own undoing. It was just the circumstances, but the three, um, reorient, like repurposing that I did have from that, um, you know, made me who I am today. And so Jim, what is the overall message you want to communicate to the, uh, the audience out there, the people listening, uh, based off of those experiences that you mentioned? Um, be resilient, be tough and give yourself the time you need when you have setbacks. Don't, you know, just know yourself. If you're someone who needs a lot of time to kind of wallow and feel sorry for yourself, then give yourself that. Don't deny yourself who you are. If you're someone who doesn't need any of it, then move right along. But either way, get back up on the horse and find a new mission, find a new purpose in life um, or a new goal or whatever you have to do to focus your efforts towards. Don't let setbacks derail your overall trajectory in life and just understand that your plan on paper is not going to pan out the way you think it is but that doesn't mean it's not going to be as good or better than what you're currently planning but you just have to be able to adapt and um grow from grow from setbacks anything you would change along the journey from 16 to now 28 years mm-hmm. old um obviously mistakes are made and obviously there are things you, you anyone would want back but at the same time if you don't make those mistakes or if you don't want things back then would you be would I be where I am and if the answer to that is no then no I don't because uh I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything about my current you know situation I've made I've built a life we've built a life that is uh in perfect alignment with what we want. Not everything's not perfect, but it's in perfect alignment with what I want and who I am and my value system. Mm. Um, so strong point there, you know, I think for the listeners is like, you know, maybe sometimes we're so worried about being perfect and, and forgetting what that actually means. Being perfect is what is perfect for us. And that's different for everyone. You know, it, what's perfect for you, what what what's a perfect like for you is much different than what it is for Michael. What it's it, what right. it's different for me, you know. Um, but you staying true to who you are, and and those values that you have, you're gonna have a enjoyable life. And I think even with those three setbacks that you express um, to us tonight you're still, you still lived an awesome life so far and you're going to continue living an awesome life. And, and you learned a lot throughout those challenges too, like you said, to, to make you the man that you are today. And I'm proud to be an American <laughs> who at least I know. I'm sorry, go ahead. Dan oh, Greenwood coming in. <laughs> well, Mike, no, uh, anything else to add here? I think that's a... You no, know, all I can say is it's a good message to communicate to people out there um, listening that um, hustle, have a plan A, plan B, plan C. Um, be adaptable. I think human beings are very adaptable. Um, Jim, you've, you've shown that. You know, you just kind of you hit the ground, you roll and you run. And um, 
that's uh, that's huge. Cause you're gonna falter in life. You're gonna have those those times when it seems dark, but uh, keep pushing forward. That's it's huge, you know. Not to dwell on stuff. That's it's big because it keeps it helps you to progress. So it's a great message, and uh, I'm proud of you, man. Yeah, me too. Me too. This is this was fun. And thanks for listening to a Tall Glass of Podcast. Until next time, cheers.